I want to, uh, before we start this morning, I want to welcome Jay Nair, who's watching live uh, from uh, India, and uh, thank you, brother. It's good to have you with us, and um, God bless you. Um, I was just thinking as we sang that song, verse 2, it says, The king there in his beauty without a veil is seen. I don't know if you stop and think about words, but that gripped me when we just read that. We'll see Jesus face to face without a veil. And um, the last verse is just amazing. Um, the bride eyes not her garment, but her dear, dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace. The lamb, the lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. And I want to show you that same Savior this morning. And if that's going to happen then we need his help, so let's pray. So plainly, so bluntly, Lord Jesus, you said, my sheep hear my voice. And that's what we want now. We want to hear your voice. So we seek your help in this message, help to speak, help to hear, help to understand, help to be vulnerable to the Holy Spirit that we may be changed. So, Lord, we ask that you would draw near to us, be our teacher, guard us from the devil who would confuse and distract and destroy and deceive. Jesus, you said that seeing they do not see when you indicted the religious teachers of your day. And we tremble to think that that could be a possibility for any of us this morning. Or hearing they do not hear. Oh, God, everybody in this room is about to see and hear something and I pray that it's a true seeing and a true hearing of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. This week, I read a rousing article on CNN.com's uh, living section, and it was entitled, More Teens Becoming Fake Christians. The essay uh, interacts actually with a book by Kenda Dean, who's a professor of Princeton Theological Seminary. And uh, her book is entitled Almost Christian. In it, she, uh, she had this to say. If you're a parent of a Christian teenager, your child may be following a mutant form of Christianity, and you may be responsible. More American teenagers are embracing moralistic therapeutic deism. Translation, a watered-down faith that portrays God as a divine therapist whose chief goal is to boost people's self-esteem. Dean said that she drew her conclusion from what she calls one of the most depressing summers of my life. She interviewed 3,300 uh, 3, American teenagers between the ages of 13 and 17 and found that most American teens who called themselves Christians uh, either were indifferent, indifferent to the Christian faith or were totally unable to even articulate what it meant. Emory professor, Emory University in Georgia, Professor Elizabeth Corey added her voice to the conversation. Here's what she said. Churches and parents share some of the blame for teens' religious apathy. Parents often preach, or sorry, pastors often preach a safe message that can bring in the largest number of congregants. The result is more people, but yawning in the pews. But a gospel of niceness, she says, can't teach teens how to confront tragedy. 
It can't bear the weight of deeper questions like, why did my best friend commit suicide? Or, why are my parents getting a divorce? That's well said. But perhaps the most provocative thing in the article was the following. This gospel of niceness interferes with the Christian call to take risks, witness, and sacrifice for others. If teenagers lack an articulate faith, it may be because the faith we show them as parents is too spineless to merit much in the way of conversation. It's not radical. To which I say, maybe. Maybe, Kenda, but actually the problem is more severe than that. The problem is that parents' faith is, is it's not the problem that parents' faith is spineless. The problem is that the parents of these fake teens are often just as fake themselves. It's true that Christians need to heed the call to take risks and witness and sacrifice for others. But friends, that's not a call to radical Christianity. That's a call to basic Christianity. The problem isn't that most American teenagers look at their parents and wonder where the word radical is. The problem is most American teenagers look at their parents and see the word fake when they look at their faith. Fake parents produce fake kids. And we can broaden that out to say fake churches produce fake parents who produce fake children. We live in a generation of fakes, a generation of phony Christianity. In fact, the New York Times um, chronicled a a guy who was from Texas uh, who confessed being a fake Christian. Here's what he says. He says, it seems silly, but it's serious business down here in Texas. We don't go to church to teach our children one belief is right over the other. We expose them to every form of belief and trust that one day they'll settle into their own spirituality. However, listen to this, for the sake of friends and neighbors, we pretend that we're Christians. But as the children are getting older, this isn't so easy for them, and leaving the church is probably imminent. Yeah, it's imminent because you're a fake. You're a fake. Stop being fake. Now, at this point, as I was preparing this message, I immediately thought of myself. And I immediately had to ask myself the convicting question, is there fakeness in me? So before we start patting ourselves on the back, we need to remember our own propensity to be people pleasers. It's in all of us. And and actually, think about it. People pleasing is really only one step away from being totally fake altogether. Take, for example, Ananias and Sapphira. Here's a pair of fake Christians who were not changed on the inside, but who still wanted some place in the visible church. And the reason they dropped dead isn't because all hypocrites drop dead. For example, it doesn't happen to Simon the magician in Acts chapter 8. But the reason they drop dead is to give a stunning warning to the whole church that phony Christianity will always end up this way sooner or later. And God means for his people to fear hypocrisy. And that's where we're going this morning. Now, if you weren't here last week, we started in chapter 2. And in chapter 2, we have this account of, of really two, two, two uh, journeys. One is Paul goes up to Jerusalem, and two, Peter comes to Antioch. So we have these two things. Paul comes down to where Peter is, and Peter now comes up to where Paul is. 
And in the first visit, we saw a very important principle was laid down about the nature of the gospel, or really what the gospel is. We saw that the problem was over circumcision and whether Gentiles needed to be circumcised in order to be saved. And actually, the problem wasn't so much what they were adding to the gospel, but that they were adding to the gospel. Um, incidentally, I read J. Gresham Machen uh, after that sermon, and I found a really, good, a really good piece out of there, and I thought it was very helpful. Here's what he said. Machen said, The central point at issue between Paul and these false teachers concerned the logical ordering of three steps. It's, this is very helpful. Listen to what he says. Paul said... One, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Two, at that moment you're saved. Three, then you'll start obeying and keeping the law. The false teacher said, one, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Two, and start keeping the law as best you can. And then three, you're saved. So you see, Paul says, believe you're saved and then obey. And the false teacher said, believe, obey, and then you're saved. You see how subtle that is? That's what Paul was concerned about. So he took a Gentile named Titus to Jerusalem and right before Peter, James, and John to see if they agreed with him that Christ was enough. And they did, thankfully. They agreed on the principle that Jesus plus nothing really is everything. So a victory was won for us as the gospel was preserved for you and for me, and a gospel was won for the church as the church was united around one message, and the the gospel was preserved missions since it now was going out to all races and cultures of people. A victory was won. So Paul and Peter exchanged the right hand of fellowship and they went on mission. But unfortunately, the controversy is not over. It's not over because Peter comes to Antioch and things get wild. They do. They get wild. Now, this is an explosive passage and you don't have to go any further than verse 11 to realize it. But when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I, Paul, opposed him to his face. One man, I think it was Tom Askell, called this the clash of the titans. Now, of course, you might be the type of person who loves to see a good fight. Um, You know, I I remember years ago when Ultimate Fighting uh, was just kind of getting started, and um, and it's maybe a decade and a half ago, and it was it was it was a big deal, and it, the octagon, you know, it was cage fighting. It was avant garde. It was it was all the rage. It was the latest. It was the greatest. It was everything. It was edgy, and in those days, it was really entertaining because they would probably they would take all kinds of mismatches. I remember a 600 pound uh, black sumo wrestler, for example, fighting a 230 pound white boxer. And they don't do that anymore, but back then, Ultimate Fighting was really engaging because you could watch that. It was just silly. It was like this crazy mismatch. And, uh, but most people actually don't like that sort of thing. They tend to shrink from that. And uh, maybe you're here this morning, you're thinking, all right, Paul is opposing Peter to his face. So is Paul maybe one of these belligerent types who just loves a good fight? Well, if you think that, let me put your mind at ease by saying what we see here with Paul is an example of love and courage and standing for the truth when it mattered the most, despite the fact that it's extremely tense. Now, I grew up in church as a pastor's son, and I've seen situations down through the years. Um, I've seen a lot of tense situations, maybe not a lot, but a few. Um, 
But no tense situation have I ever experienced that even remotely gets close to the tenseness of this situation. Uh, You can imagine how awkward it'd be if while I'm preaching right now, one of our elders stood up and said, what Jonathan is teaching is false. I want everyone to know that what Jonathan is saying right now behind the pulpit is false. That'd be extremely awkward. (laughs) Extremely awkward. And yet that's exactly what happens here. Paul confronts Peter to his face. And you think, well, maybe that's just a private conversation. Maybe it is. But look at verse 14. At verse 14, he says that he confronts Peter in front of everyone. So there you go. This is a public confrontation. It was very tense. But listen, it was very necessary. It was very tense, but it was very necessary. Because what's at stake here is not just some simple misgiving that Paul has with Peter, but it's the gospel itself. And friends, just to be clear, if push comes all the way to shove, the gospel is worth losing a friend over. God forbid. Well, it'd be really easy to read this passage then as Paul the hero. Paul who stood up for the truth. Paul who we should emulate and stand up and be like. And, you know, actually most commentaries follow that approach. But somehow I don't think Paul's tooting his own horn in Galatians 3. I don't think that's what Paul's after here. I I think that would be a fine sermon, but I think instead what he wants is for us to look at this account not from his standpoint, but from Peter's. So that in effect, what Paul is saying to the Galatians is, either you're in a Peter-like situation right now, or you're about to be in a Peter-like situation, and I want you to know the, the consequences that come from doing what Peter did, and I want you to avoid that. So, so I think specifically what Paul is doing is he's using this story to show the Galatians why Peter messed up and how to avoid it. And so we want to learn those two lessons this morning. Why Peter messed up and how to avoid it. Now, when I use the word messed up, that sounds kind of cheap. Sounds a little shallow, doesn't it? Messed up. But actually, this is a big deal. And you know, like when you mess something, when you really mess something up, I want that word mess up to really mess up something to carry its full emotional weight with you uh, when I use it. So before I launch into this, question of why, um, I just want you to notice very simply first that he did mess up. All right, look at verse 12. First of all, he did mess up. Um, It says here, for before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and he separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So what's he doing? He's two-faced. He's hanging out with the Gentiles. He's happy doing that. He's doing a great job. He's serving them. He is giving them the gospel. He is spending time with them. He's actually eating with them, and he's just totally with them. And then when his Jewish buddies come in, all of a sudden fear grips him, and he, and he starts removing himself from Gentiles and acting like he never really had a relationship with them to begin with. He's being a fake. What Peter's doing, he's being a fake. That's verse 12. Second thing he does is, look at this, verse 13. He leads others astray. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically What's the, along with him. <laughs> so not only is he leading himself astray, he's leading others astray, and he's guilty of that. He, in verse 14, what's the third thing he does? He undermines the truth of the gospel. 
But when I saw that their conduct, here it is, was not in step with the truth of the gospel. So let's just be real clear up front. Peter is messing up big time. Number one, he's a hypocrite. He's being a fake. And number two, he's leading himself and others astray. And number three, he's guilty of being out of step with the truth of the gospel. Now, the question that I want to ask this morning then is why? I want to get at why. I want to get kind of beneath the text here. I want to dig with you. I want to dig deep so that we can ask the question, why did Peter do that? Because if, if we don't ask that question, why, what happens is it's like Groundhog Day. We keep making the same mistake over and over and over again. And it's essential that we figure out why people do this and why we do this so we can avoid it. So why? Why did Peter act like a hypocrite? Why did he... Why did he do these things? First, Peter feared man more than he feared God. Verse 12, he feared man more than God. For until certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself. Notice the phrase, fearing the circumcision party. Fearing those who were pro-circumcision. Those who were circumcision is essential for salvation. Now, note the word fear. What Peter did here was, it was not a matter of principle. It was a matter of cowardice. This was not the first time that Peter had given in to peer pressure. You remember back in the Gospels with Jesus. He denied Jesus at least three times on three separate occasions. So this is at least the fourth time that Peter's given in to peer pressure. Surely there's more than that, but at least we have four examples in Scripture. Now, so when these conservative right-wing Jews come in to Antioch, what happens is they were absolutely shocked to see Peter sitting there eating with the Gentiles. This would be like Sunni Muslims and Shiites getting together with Jews and Christians and having a big pork roast. I mean, this is radical stuff. You're talking about Peter, who, who, who is supposed to be under the Jewish ceremonial law, Peter, eating pork. So this is scandalous. And when these right-wingers come in and they see Peter doing this, the, the, one paraphrase, actually, one translation or paraphrase of this says, says about this, it brings a full emotional weight out here. It says, Peter, you smell like ham. <laughs> And you know it, that's it. Peter is violating his 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 profession. Peter is violating his Jewish traditions, and these guys are angry at Peter. And the the verbal aspect, the the tense that's used here in Greek, indicates that Peter was eating regularly with the Gentiles. This was an ongoing eating. This was a habitual eating. Peter had moved into constantly eating with the Gentiles, and you know what? That's a good thing. Because God said it was a good thing in Acts 11. Uh, I don't know if you remember the vision that Peter received uh, from God when God said, all food is clean. Remember that? And in that vision, Peter saw an image, a sheet actually, coming down from heaven. And on it were animals that were for- forbidden to eat in the Old Testament. And, um, and he heard a voice, Peter heard a voice saying, kill and eat. And Peter said, no, Lord, no, I can't, I can't eat these things. I've never put any unclean food in my mouth. And then God, what did God say to Peter? He said to Peter, Peter, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. 
So there it is. Peter, Peter knew that the ceremonial law was finished and that, and that he was free to eat. So he's eating with Gentiles, and that's a good thing he should have been doing that. All right? Now, here's what happens. Peter, right after Acts 11, ends up going to uh, meeting a man named Cornelius, who's born again, and he's converted. And Cornelius is a Gentile, and Peter says this amazing thing. He says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men who fear him from every nation. Isn't that amazing? So when Peter stops when Peter stops eating with the Gentiles because his Jewish buddies don't like it, it's not just cowardice, it's complete hypocrisy. Because he knows full well that eating that pork with those Gentiles is an okay thing to do. So but when the pressure comes on, Peter didn't practice what he preached. It's not that he changed his theology. It's that he conveniently changed his behavior. And so many people don't get this today, that what you do as a Christian needs to reflect what you believe. You can have all the theological degrees in the world. You can have a Ph.D. You can have a master's degree in theology. But who cares if it doesn't affect your behavior? Friends, there needs to be a connection between what you believe and how you act. And uh, I'm going to press on us here a little bit. This is going to be convicting, but I want to press on us gently and lovingly. People say they believe that Jesus is the only way to God. People say they believe that there is a heaven and that there is a hell, and that people will spend an eternity in hell if they do not repent of their sins. People say they love their neighbors But people will live, Christians will live next to the same neighbor for 20 years and never once bother to tell them about that Jesus. If someone asks them, do you love your neighbor? They'll say yes. If someone asks them, do you you believe that unless people repent and trust in Jesus that they'll go to hell? They'll say yes. But if you ask them, have you told your neighbor about it? They'll say no. That's a major disconnect. We say that we believe God owns all the resources in the world, including our wallets, our houses, our cars, that we are to invest our treasure in heaven where where moth and rust do not destroy, and that God promises to take care of us, and that if we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, that he'll add all these things to us, and yet what do we do? We hoard our money. That's a disconnect. You say you believe that you are to love your wife as Christ loves the church. But the second she slips out to the grocery store, there's pornography on the screen. That's a disconnect. It's a major disconnect. And if that's you, you better wake up this morning and realize that you have a serious connection problem between what you believe and how you act. You're faking it. And if it goes on long enough... There's no reason to think that you're a Christian. Friends, I'm not saying you're not a Christian, but what I'm saying is if that goes on long enough, there's no reason to think that you are. Where is the evidence? You don't act in accordance with what you say you believe. That's what Peter's doing. He feared man more than he feared God. And what did it do? It left him with a double life. 
Peter's leading a double life. So he feared God more than man. That's the first thing. Number two, verse 13, Peter did not think about the consequences of his actions. Verse 13, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. See, when Peter caved into the pressure to withdraw from table fellowship with Gentiles, when he caved in, he didn't think about the consequences of his decision. Look what happens. Notice the word led astray in verse 13. Now, See, now there's two sets of people that are being led astray. Number one, Paul is being led astray. Or Peter, excuse me, is being led astray. And not only Peter, but Barnabas and all the rest of the Jews. So two sets of people here. So this is escalating. Peter is veering off from the truth, and Peter doesn't even realize it. That's how deceptive this thing is. He doesn't even realize that he's veering off. Peter didn't get the idea that what you do begins to change what you believe. Let me say that again. What you do begins to change what you believe. After Peter stopped eating with the Gentiles, he slowly started to change his beliefs. And so it is with all of us. You believe one thing, but then you start to act contrary to those beliefs. And soon enough, you start changing what you believe to fit your behavior. We typically think about it the other way around, don't we? What you believe has an impact on what you do. That's true. But it's also true that what you do has an impact on what you believe. I've seen this time and time again. A kid's raised in church. I've seen it here. A kid's raised in church. He makes a profession of faith. But as soon as he gets older, he falls into patterns of sin and rebellion, both against his parents and God. So in order to get his beliefs to fit his behavior, he starts changing his beliefs. And all of a sudden, he starts talking like he's a skeptic. He's not a skeptic. He's never been a skeptic. But as soon as, as soon as he's noticed a disconnect between his belief and his behavior, he starts questioning God, the Bible, and everything else. So do you see his behavior is actually impacting his beliefs? And frankly, here's why. It's easier to change your beliefs than it is your behavior. I mean, it's, if it's just a belief, hey, I mean, I can just chuck that to the side. I can just say, that's my out. I don't believe in God anymore. <laughs> that's fake. Of course you believe in God. You're just trying to somehow live with a bad conscience of knowing that your behavior is something that God himself hates. So what you say is like a little kid, I don't like green beans, therefore they don't exist. You don't have to like green beans. They do exist. And God exists. And Peter is conveniently changing his beliefs. Look, Peter believed in justification by faith alone. See, but once he started to hang out with these guys who didn't, he started to believe that Jews were actually superior. I mean, why else would he withdraw with, from table fellowship? So Peter goes from evangelist to racist. Do you, you feel the weight of this? Peter goes from evangelist to racist. He goes from lover of all people to lover of his people. And he draws conclusions that were out of step with the truth of the gospel. Friends, we need to be careful who we spend our time with and what we do because it will affect our beliefs. This happens all the time. Uh, usually it starts with something small like just kind of skipping church a little bit. 
or maybe not reading your Bible as often. And what you do is you start saying then, changing your beliefs, well, you know, the church really isn't that important. Or you start saying, you know, and just in reading your Bible every day, that's just another form of legalism anyway. And slowly but surely, you start changing your beliefs. And the reason you're doing it is actually because you're falling away from God. That's what's happening to Peter. But notice, secondly, Peter's not only leading himself astray, he's leading others astray. Verse 13 again. Peter didn't realize he was causing other people to change their beliefs. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas, what's this? Even Barnabas, faithful old Barnabas, affectionate man that he was. All the Gentile churches loved him. Good old Barnabas was being led astray. He was loved by all, and he's carried away with all the rest. And so it is with us in our moment of crisis. Unless we have the fortitude, the moral fortitude to say no, you can be a good man with a good heart and very easily be led astray. But here's the issue. Peter is leading him astray. Peter is responsible for leading Barnabas astray. Peter is at fault for leading good old Barnabas away. And there's plenty of application for us here as leaders. If you're a pastor and you're here or you've been a pastor or you hope to be a pastor someday or you're a pastoral student, there's so much application here for us. Because the truth is this, people will follow what we do rather than what we say we believe. If we say we believe something, great. But what do we do? So as leaders, we need to watch not only our doctrine, but our lives as well. Because if what we believe doesn't change what we do, then our words are empty. So church, pray for your pastors. Pray for your pastors that, that they will be men who, who are not just saying compelling words, but whose lives are compelling as well. And Peter led himself and others astray because he did not think about the consequences. So number one, he feared man. Number two, he did not think about the consequences. And number three, Peter messed up because he was out of step with the truth of the gospel. Verse 14. Look at 14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew... How can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? All right, you probably didn't get that statement the first time. Uh, That's a very difficult translation. The NIV clears it right up. Um, Let me just read the NIV. Listen to this. The NIV is really helpful here. It says, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile. All right, so Peter is a Jew, yet he's living like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How then is it that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? You feel that now? How is it that you're forcing Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? In other words, if Peter's a Jew and he doesn't even follow Jewish customs himself, he certainly has no right to make Gentiles follow Jewish customs. You, you see that? But you see, what Peter is doing is he's, this is actually quite serious. By not eating with the Gentiles, he's saying, I have no fellowship with you. I have no table fellowship with you, which, by the way, includes the Lord's table the Lord's Supper fellowship. I have no fellowship with you. And then he's essentially saying, 
that Gentiles are not Christians unless they become Jews. That's what Peter's saying. So it's no wonder Paul's angry here. Peter's conduct is not even close, even remotely close, to being in step with the gospel. He has flip-flopped the gospel. He has said, you have to culturally become a Jew to be a Christian by removing his fellowship from Gentiles. So he's taking, and, and even more than that, he's, this is unbelievable. Not only is it racism and ethnic pride on the part of Peter, but he's adding to the gospel by making the Jewish ceremonial food laws a test of fellowship. And you know what that is? That's a Jesus plus gospel. And I told you that Peter was going there, and, and here he is. He's done it. Moreover, Peter's directly rebelling against God because, as I already said, God had already instructed him that all foods are clean. So now he's actually spitting in the face of God by saying, actually, God, you said all foods are clean, but I'm telling you, actually, they're not clean. But Peter's contradicting God. And now he's disobeying God by calling all these foods unclean again. In fact, what he's doing is he's essentially telling Gentiles that they cannot be saved unless they become Jews outwardly. See how confused he is? He's not only disobeying God, he's asking Gentiles to strip themselves of the very freedom they have in Christ and to volunteer to become slaves to a Jewish law that can't save them. So he is destroying the gospel. He's asking them to come back into slavery to a law that can't save them. So it's no wonder Paul opposes him to his face. Paul's not being a jerk when he goes to Peter. Paul is saying, Peter, your soul's in danger. In fact, unless Peter repents, guess what? Anathema. Anathema, apostle or no apostle. Anathema, unless Peter repents, to hell with Peter. This is the reality. This is, this is weighty. So now here's the question. How, how do we avoid Peter's mistake? How do we avoid doing this? Peter's pretty messed up. Well, I think a good place to start would be to do the opposite of what Peter did. Just, just do the opposite. And it really comes down to this. Friends, we are to fear God more than we fear man. We are to fear God more than we fear man. Instead of being afraid of men, we need to have a primary and overruling fear of God himself. Peter was driven by the approval of man, and it led him to embrace a false gospel and, and a hypocritical lifestyle. And we need this as a church this morning. We, we need to hear this. Instead of putting on a good, pretentious, hypocritical show on Sunday mornings, we need to take off the mask. In fact, the Greek word hypocrisy um, is extracted from the whole Greek world of theater, where in the Greek world, um, these actors would put on a mask. And the Greek word hypocrisy means to speak out from under. So the, the, the actor would put on his mask, and he would speak from underneath that mask. And let's just get real practical with this this morning. If you're a fundamentally different person on Monday through Saturday than you are on Sunday morning, then you have major problems with the fear of man. Major problems. I don't know about you, but I am so tired of the superficiality in Christianity. I'm just, I'm just sick of it. Honestly, it's, it's just repulsive. 
You know the same old rote, hey, how you doing? Fine, thanks, how are you? That's baloney. That's cheap. That's superficial. It's disingenuous, and it's often fake. And, you know, that's why people try to come up with expressions like, better than I deserve. I mean, at least they're trying to come up with something that's more meaningful and less superficial. But see, what I'm after is this. Friends, how can we create a culture or a context at HBC where we feel free to open ourselves to one another and take off the masks and start really caring for one another meaningfully? I mean, how do we stop pretending? How do we get past the superficiality? Friends, if we mainly, if what we do when we get together is mainly talk about our kids, sports, iPhones, crafts, clothes, and music, then we have a long way to go towards being an authentic community that really loves one another for Christ, genuinely cares for one another. I think what happens is we're afraid, and so we keep it superficial. We're prideful, and so we keep it superficial. Pride gets in the way. Not only pride, but a performance mentality. Maybe, maybe that's become our ethic suddenly. We, we just, we've fallen into it. I've fallen into it. You've fallen into it. You know, it goes like this. How good is my parenting? How well-behaved are my kids? How spiritual are my teenagers? How theologically rich are my prayers? How does my family compare with that family over there? We perform and we pretend and we try to climb the, 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 the church ladder of spirituality. Look, look, people, people will say, they'll get to a place where they say, look at me. Look how well-respected I am. Look how the pastors call on me to lead this or that, and so on and so forth, and God just hates it. It's fake. So why don't we open up? What do we have to lose except for some pride, a little pride? And sometimes we justify our superficiality by saying that, you know, it's not appropriate to be transparent. Have you ever heard that one? Well, I want to share, you know, my sin, and I would like to, but, you know, it's just not really appropriate. It's so James 5 is not appropriate to confess your sin to one another, that you may be healed. So it's not appropriate to follow the Bible. Of course, there's times where it's inappropriate to share something in a, in a group of 30 people. But at some point, you have to find a way to share your life with people. And if you're struggling, you've got to find a way to get that out. So we keep it superficial. I've done this. Think about it. Two people are passing each other in the hallway. One person says, hey, how are you doing? And the other person says, I'm fine. The first guy didn't give a rip. And the second guy is living in the sin up to his neck. That is sick. That is messed up. That is messed up for us to be like that. The first guy, if he doesn't give a rip, then he needs to start caring. And the second guy, if he's living in a sin up to his neck, he needs to confess it so he can get some help. Yeah, and I know it's just a I know it's just a, a phrase that we use. I, I know it's just an expression, a gesture in our culture to say, "Hey, how you doing?" But we have to get past the gesture. We have to provide a context for real, lasting, meaningful care, and then begin to open up and authentically love one another. Friend, take off the mask. 
If you're not doing well, God knows it. And I think what God would say to us is this. Take off the mask. You're not spiritual, and I know it. Take off the mask. You're not that loving, gentle, tender husband that you act like you are at church, and I know it. Take off the mask. You're not that sweet, submissive wife, and I know it. Take off the mask. You're not that serving and humble when no one else is looking, and I know it. Take off the mask. You are not that spiritual youth group when parents are not looking, and I know it. Take off the mask. You're not the good kid that you say you are who's doing well in school, but instead is giving adults canned answers and telling them all the good things that's going on in their life. And I know it. What God is, I think that's what God is saying. Saying, take off the mask. Friends, did we ever stop and wonder why if our children are so good at putting on masks, maybe they've just watched us as parents for so long do it ourselves? So take off the masks. Parents and children, take off the masks. Because the fact is, nobody is getting any help that way. What are we doing? And I need help. And you need help. And we all need help. So how are we going to fix this? I think the only way that we're going to fix this I think the only way we're going to stop putting on masks is to realize that God wants you to come as you are. God wants you to come as yourself. God loves you, and Christ died for fake people. (laughs) Christ died for hypocrites who spend their days trying to pretend that they're better than they really are. Isn't God good? He cares about us. We are fake. How fake are we sometimes? And yet God says, that's what I want. I want you to come with all that fakeness and all that disingenuousness. I want you to come and I want you to say, confess it. And I want you to come right to me in the midst of all that sin and receive help. And friends, here's the thing. To the degree that we wear masks around here, every church does this. This isn't just our church. But to the degree that we do this as Christians around here, to the degree that we wear masks, is the same degree that we don't understand justification by faith alone in Christ alone. Listen, listen to me. Christ is our righteousness. Every other message tells you you're, you're not good, and therefore in, in order to be good, you better work really hard and try to be good and perform. That's what every other message says. But folks, that's works righteousness. That's a false gospel. And it'll continue to enslave you unless Christ frees you. But when you get a hold of the fact that there is nothing you can do to earn a right standing before God. And when you get a hold of the fact that the idea that Christ has done it all for you, that you are perfect, that you are righteous in Christ alone, then you'll stop pretending. Then you'll start living like a real broken, humble, and forgiven sinner. Because you'll know that Jesus is the essence of your life and not your performance. So take off the mask. Here's what I want. I want someone to be able to approach a pastor around here and say, Pastor, I'm sleeping with my boyfriend, and I know it's wrong, but I want help. 
how do you cultivate that kind of frankness? Where, when, when a culture of truth and care and real help is formed, you get it through the gospel. You get it through the gospel. You get it through the good news that says your righteousness comes through faith in Christ alone. So have you messed up? Have you messed up this morning? Are you messing up right now? Are you messed up? Then friends, repent and trust again. And trust again. Go back to the Savior and trust again. See, when we operate this way with each other on the basis of justification by faith alone, and when we stop pretending, we create a culture where we can actually help each other. We create a culture where the person receiving help and repenting knows that he's not going to be in the doghouse forever. But he knows that he'll get to start again by grace, like all of us have. We preach a gospel of grace. We preach a gospel of mercy. We preach a gospel of forgiveness. This is the gospel of second chances. Jonah fell in his ministry. Jonah fell significantly. And in Jonah chapter 3, verse 1, the word of God came to Jonah a second time. Do you love that? After Jonah had just rebelled, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time. Because this is the gospel of second chances. And though a righteous man falls seven times, he will rise again. And so did Peter. Peter rose again. He humbly received Paul's rebuke. We have no reason to think that he didn't because of the rest of his life. He humbly received Paul's rebuke. He repented. And in Acts chapter 15, guess who it is who stands defending the truth of the gospel? Guess who it is who declares that the Gentiles need only Christ to be saved, that Christ is sufficient? Guess who says that? You're right. It's Peter. Hypocritical Peter, who caved in and messed up, who gave in to the fear of man. Hypocritical Peter, who, who undermined the very truth of the gospel. He rose again, and that's what God does with sinners. He picks us up when we fall. That's our God. He picks us back up. So friends, get up. If you've fallen down, then get up. Fear God and not man. Go to the gospel and be yourself. Take off the mask and realize that Christ's blood was shed for you. And through his sacrifice, you are pure and perfect. In his eyes. So take off the masks. You'll feel naked and exposed initially. But at least you'll know that you're resting in a righteousness that's not your own. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the the exposure to ourselves through this text. Lord, we see our we see we see how much we're like Peter in this passage. 
just all over the place. We are hypocritical. We are two-faced. We are we are, we are self-reflecting. We are self-promoting. We are cowardice. All these things, Lord. And Lord, we thank you that you have you gave Peter you gave Peter the humility to repent and to start again. And you turned him into a great saint who did great things for the cause of Christ. Father, help us to fear you more than we fear man and to be driven by that ethos all the days of our life. Lord, so that we become a culture and a church and a people who are authentic and genuine and caring and and seriously engaged in our love for one another. So Father, I pray that if there's any there's anyone here, Lord, who just is just right now in their spirit, they are just resisting taking off the mask, that the performance that comes in. Lord, if that if that's there, if there's a hardness, if there is a block there and, and they don't want to take off and, and, and expose the real the real them in front of the, our brothers and sisters, Lord, I pray that you would break them, Lord, of that. Break all of us of that, Lord. We have got to be real with each other. Lord, you know all about us. Lord, I pray that you would make us that kind of community. Lord, for our help, for our good, and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.